Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to everyone watching on HughHewitt.com, listening via the HughHewitt.com app or the podcast or in the universe, wherever you are, welcome. That music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, we talk about a big issue in big terms, constitutional and historical terms, with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues up there in Michigan or at the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. I always remind people at the beginning of this broadcast, all things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including all of their magnificent online courses. And you can find every conversation I've had with Dr. Arn and his colleagues dating back to 2013. These dialogues found collated in the correct order at hughforhillsdale.com. And so you can go to those places. Dr. Arn, a good morning to you. I hope your July is off to a good start. It is. Thank you. Good morning to you, too. Did you have a fine celebration of independence on July the 4th? We did. We have some of our children home who are not customarily here. And so we had our patriotic readings, and we had our fireworks, and we had everything we needed. Do, do students inhabit the college in the summer and risk burning things down? Uh, yeah, we can't get rid of them. Um, there, there's, there are two short summer schools. This is a very old-fashioned college, so not a lot of summer school, but we have two short three-week summer school sessions right at the start of the summer. And, they, you know, they kind of go all day, and you get three hours of credit in a quick amount of time. But then after that, they hang around. They look for jobs. They let them work in the college. They get, they get all kinds of jobs here, and they get jobs in town because they don't want to go. Then they will be up to no good on the night of July 4th. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, as part of our chapel now, nearly done, we're building a, fount- a fountain in front of it, very beautiful. And it's a restoration of a fountain that was on the campus here for about 70 years. But in about 1910, in a student prank, it was dynamited. What? <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't had that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole new definition to student prank. I tell you. I mean, you'd have the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Everybody would come. What kind of a student? Is that? Is there? Is there a write-up on the blow-up of the fountain? That's a novel. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's big. It's uh, because the fountain is a recreation of the, of the old one. It's bigger, and it's going to be very pretty. It has a pine cone at the top, which is a Christian symbol. Um, anyway, it's, it, uh, because of that and because the senior class helped raise money for the thing, Everybody knows the story now, and I've got my agents checking on all the local outlets for dynamite to make sure we're not, they're not buying any. Well, I'm just checking. Will you be etching a couple of sticks of the dyno into the base of the fountain just as a memorial to its once and future existence? I'll take that down as a suggestion. All right. So let, let's, <laughs> taking down a suggestion, let's talk about suggesting census stuff. Yesterday, the president ordered the census to include a citizenship question on Thursday afternoon. How it gets to the Supreme Court, when it gets to the Supreme Court, is going to be much debated over the next few days. I want to debate something differently. I want to debate whether or not the president was right to do so. Uh, let's begin with the enumerations clause. And le- actually, let's begin, Larry Arn, for the benefit of the Steelers fans. The Constitution divides the federal power into three distinct branches. What are they and why did they do that? Uh, Article One is where everything begins. It's the legislative power and governments, if they're just governments, pursued through, uh, proceed through laws. And the laws are written in the legislative branch. Laws are meant to be general prescriptions of how people are to behave in the future without respect to particular persons. They're supposed to be general in their nature, not supposed to even know who they're going to affect in the future. 
then the laws are executed, that's to say, enforced, uh, implemented, uh, the people educated about what they mean through an executive branch headed by a president. Uh, the, the spirit of the executive is executive. Uh, it's, uh, it executes. The spirit of the, of the legislative is deliberative. It thinks. It argues. It talks. It's not on any really tight schedule. So those two are separated. And then the third thing is the, the courts judge disputes that arise under the execution of the laws. And it is one of the most important things about the Constitution that the judges are independent. That means they cannot be removed nor their salary changed once they're uh, uh, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate in the case of federal judges. So you set up these three things that are different from each other and separated from each other, and yet their work radically depends upon each other. And Madison says that the structure of the Constitution is the most important thing about it. Why? Well, because uh, it, its effect will be, first of, all, first of all, the obvious point, it prevents the concentration of power into the hands of just a few or one. Uh, in the Declaration of Independence, God appears as the legislature and the executive and the judicial in various namings of God, you know, for example, supreme judge of the world. And, 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 and then that, the lesson is, if it were a divine thing, a divine being, then he could be trusted with all that power. So the first purpose is to make the government safe. But the second is to make it better. And better covers a wide range of things. One of them is... The division of labor is obvious, uh, and obviously can have benefits. Once you're deciding what to do, when you're busy deciding what to do as a general rule for a long time in the future, that's one kind of activity. And then another kind of activity is, what do you do right now today in this stuff that's going on? That's the executive, right? And then the third thing, the judges, they come after the fact, after it's done. And then they look at it and see what are the rights and wrongs of this. And so, obviously, if you divide those three things, then they can proceed unencumbered, and we can be better at them. And then the final reason is probably the most important reason, and that is, if the powers are divided and yet required to be coordinated, that sets up a deliberative process that goes on in all of the parts of the government and that involves us every two years at election. And therefore, uh, the Constitution is a engaging thing that invites even the citizen body into it, like us talking about this ongoing ur time urgent fight about the census. Now, I also want to put into the, onto the table for context purposes the size of these three branches, because it matters. The Article One Congress employs a total, they have 100 senators and 435 members of the House of Representatives, but they employ between 20 and 25,000 people to conduct their business and run the Library of Congress and the Congressional Budget Office and to staff the committees in their offices. Between 20 and 25,000 people work for Article One. Fewer people work for Article Three than are work for Article One. I don't have the exact number, but there are only 190 judges on the circuit and Supreme Court, and another uh, three times that many in the district court. And they all have two or three clerks, and they got some marshals, et cetera. But they're well below the executive branch, uh, the legislative branch. By contrast, with the 25,000 people working in Article One and roughly that number in Article Three, 
Article 2 employs 2 million people that work for the president. Why is it 25,000, 2 million, 25,000, Larry Arn? Uh, well, of course, all of those numbers are too large, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the r- ratio among them, not so much. Um, because why? Because it's, uh, the legislature is supposed to be involved in a deliberative activity. It's supposed to be a bunch of people thinking. And they're actually supposed, you know, they have to think on a schedule. They have to do a lot, and there are crises that come up that they have to legislate regarding. But, but the main thing is, just remember, they're doing work in advance of the effect of the work. And so they move at a different pace, and it's a thinking job. Now, the, the uh, executive branch, that's all over the country. The laws apply everywhere. Uh, they, they, they have to go everywhere. There are, a lot, there are too many laws right now, but there are bound to be quite a few of them. And so they've got a lot to watch and a lot to do. And, of course, they need force because if you come to arrest someone, think of the meaning of that word. It means they're on their course and you stop them, and they might not like it. And so you've got to have force. And so that's, a, that's the nature of that activity. And, of course, if you include them, you're talking about the civilian employees of, of the president you know, the majority of which, by the way, don't effectively really work for him. Yes. But, but then the military is what? About a million, 200,000, I think. Correct. All the branches of government. Correct. And, you know, that's, that's the archetype of the executive agency. <laughs> <laughs> and they carry guns. When we come back, we're going to talk about why the executive agency gets to execute the census. By the way, there's just one practical point. It takes about 2 million temporary employees to execute the census. Try imagining the legislative branch actually running that. That's why it has not done so. That's why it is committed to the executive branch, the enumeration power. But we'll explain that when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn and me, Hugh Hewitt, right here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Will President Trump's attempt to put the census question back on the census, the citizenship question, back on the census succeed? I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, yesterday Chuck Todd was on with me, and he said that this issue is viewed by the Latino community as a political ploy against them. And I told him this is a lot like the elephant and the blind man, because among the Federalist Society people that is part of the president's base, it's viewed as an Article 2 question. And never shall those two views cross, because we're concerned with different things. I'll come back to how it ought to be viewed by the Latino community, but how do you view this question as an Article 2 issue versus Article 1? Well, it's obviously an executive kind of thing. Um, it, uh, it, it, the, con- the Constitution uh, demands that every 10 years there be an enumeration of all the people. And understand this is not a uh, survey. This is a, uh, you know, they go to your, every household. They it's a head every count. Every household in America. It's a head count. That's right. And, and so that's a big operation and an executive operation and the kind of the thing the, kind of thing the executive branch would do. And the Congress may surely make laws about how it's to be done, as long as they don't violate the Constitution, which is you've got to get a head count. But, uh, but the president's going to have to do it. And, and you know, then, then, then the question arises, if you want me to go on, 
um, who writes the questions? Well, turns out the history of the questions is interesting because they've changed a lot, right? First of all, every census, except for, I think, three in the 19th century and the 2010 census included the question in some form or another, are you a citizen of the United States? But the censuses have grown longer. In 1970, they bifurcated the sentence, and they introduced a long-form census that went to a random sample. Everybody got asked the short questions, which number, as a rule, through American history, 10 to 20 questions. And, of course, if you think about it, they can't be longer than that. Because somebody walks up to your door, and you open the door, and they start asking you questions. They can't ask you 100. No. So it's going to be a few, right? In, in 2010, they abolished the long form, and they much shortened the short form to 10 questions, and they started something called the American Community Survey. And that has, that goes to, that's a, now that's a random, that's a sampling, that's not a head count. And that goes on every month, and about three and a half million people a month are, are uh, fill it out some way or another. And so they're gathering an enormous amount of data now. They're just, uh, the description of the American Community Survey, which I was reading this morning, curse you, you, it, is 156 pages long. Wow. And so they ask a lot of questions, and they ask a lot of questions about citizenship. Well, they ask a few questions about citizenship on that. But, uh, but they, the, the head count questions, the number of them, is going to be ten, between 10 and 20, and it has been... Uh, not uniform, but customary in the overwhelming majority of cases that they ask if you're a citizen of the United States. And so I don't, I, I myself don't see why this should even be controversial. Now, 2010 is the first modern census where they didn't ask that question. And, and to our neighbors to the north, I would like to acknowledge since we're on up there, we know that you asked for citizenship data on the Canadian census, and we know you asked for country of origin question if you are a non-Canadian born. Uh, yes, we Canada up there. They can. That's from Toy Story 4. Yes, we Canada do it. And I am curious. I, I just have to assume, Larry Arn, that the world over where censuses are conducted, they try and find out who's a citizen and who is not. Well, that would, you know, wouldn't that be, you know, first or second you know i guess the first you know the first question is how many humans live in this household yes you know and then you know and we don't need the names of the dogs right <laughs> so first question is human and then the sec- second question is what is your status in relation to the united states of america that is seems to me obvious we come back from break it is not obvious to many people but the constitution is obvious That's an executive function. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including your free subscription to Imprimus, available at hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's Friday. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue, the must-listen to, whether by podcast or live, weekly conversation with one of the team at Hillsdale College, the lantern of sweet reason in the north, even if it is in Michigan, we love the place, hillsdale.edu. If it's in D.C., it's the lantern of sweet reason in the shadow of the Capitol over there at the Kirby Center, at which a uh, new program, new ants are moving about, worker-like, new, new winds are blowing through open windows, new programs are about to launch. Is that enough of a hint? 
uh, at Hillsdale. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, there's the Hillsdale is, I don't know who's running it, but somebody's, somebody's let it go crazy. Um, the, uh, we started it. We, we we're going to have a soft launch. I'm not supposed to talk about it. You're not. Uh, a soft launch of nothing. Of government on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. It will be called the Van Andel School of Government. Uh, we may be about to expand it through another way to include a national security program. And we're thinking about a master's degree program in uh, classical education so we can have people uh, help command these charter schools that we have many of now and that are rolling along. And uh, so there's a lot going on, and, you know, we're about to admit what looks like it's going to be the best class we ever admitted, and that seems to happen annually these days. Um, so we're going to have college again next year is my summary of the state of history. That, that's college. not much of a soft launch. That's actually a declaration for which I am not responsible when Matthew Spaulding comes around to scold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's a whining dog. He, he, he is. He's going to scold me for oh, yeah. uh, revealing the fact that this is launching and people ought to go. Well, they can skulk about the Kirby Center if they want to find out more. Uh, that's what I would tell them to do. Follow Kirby Center on Twitter, right? Yeah, there you go. All right. Let's get back to the census. Uh, when we went to break, we had described the enumeration clauses in Article 1. It's a, 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 a an enumerated power in the Constitution. It exists uh, in a limited government. And we discussed that the Census Act, most recently amended, I think, in the 80s, but it could have been in the 90s, uh, confers specifics on how to conduct the census onto the Department of Commerce. But as we know, the Department of Commerce does not belong to the Congress. It belongs to the president. So, Dr. Arn, would you explain to people, everyone with those census forms is working for the president? That's right. Um, we, we forget that these days, and, and, you know, to our cost, it's one part in the breakdown of the separation of powers that you mentioned at the outset of this conversation. Uh, the, it is the idea of the unitary executive, you know, which is, you know, to show how far we wander, which is... Uh, uh, there's a recent film I'm told about, well, I know about the film, but there's a, a Vice President Cheney called Vice, and apparently throughout the film, one of the arts is it presents this idea of the unitary executive as an innovation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, Does it, it really? It, I wouldn't go uh, yeah, see the movie because I like Dick Cheney, they, and I'm not going to see him slimed. Yeah, they thought up this crazy idea of the unitary executive. Where did that ever come from, right? Well, it comes from the first line of Article 2 of the Constitution of the United States. And, you know, it was controversial, as everything was about the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist didn't like this, and the Federalists defended it, but what they both agreed was this sets up a unitary executive. And the advantage of it is that, and, and by the way, the advantage of it has never been more apparent than now, because the advantage of it is if something goes wrong in the executive branch, you know who to blame. Yes. Except today, it's hard to know who to blame, because any local judge, to talk about an intrusion of Article 3 over Article 2, can, can delay or stop forever a, a national action, even a law passed by the Congress and signed by the president. And in, inside the executive branch, there are 150, roughly, rulemaking, lawmaking, enforcement, and judging agencies that are ostensibly part of the executive branch, but kind of not. And then finally, there is the cabinet, now, of course, much bigger than it was in the time of the founding. And the, the, the Secretary of Commerce is the other cabinet members. 
do report directly to the president, and he can fire them. And so in, in the reality of things as they are, this is as close to actually being employees of the president as we have today, except for one thing, the specific people, about five or 6,000, who work in the immediate offices of the president, the White House and the old executive office building and the new executive office building. And, and so in the structure of things, the Commerce is, Department is very much part of the executive branch, and, it, it, it's, and the census has always been performed by the executive branch because laws are always executed by the executive branch, this one included. And the census, you know, the first one was taken in 1790 by Thomas Jefferson, President Thomas, uh, no, yeah, Secretary of State. Was he Secretary of State then? Yeah. And, and uh, uh, he was, and so it was in the State Department in the beginning. But uh, so if they, so the point is, it has to be an executive branch thing, and it, and it can't be Congress writing the questions, right? Because, I mean, they could, you know, the, the short form questions are the 10 to 20 questions. The Congress could legitimately write those questions, but the executive branch would only be compelled to ask those questions if the president signed the bill. Yep. Because they don't have an they don't have a power to order him to execute in a specific way, except with his agreement or the agreement of one of his predecessors. And so, so the the, the division of powers it's obvious. And see. This, the reason this thing is a storm in a teacup, and it, it, you know, it's it's one of these silly things that bespeaks huge disputes, right? Because, yes, yes. First of all, it can't really be controversial. Can you ask a person if, if they're a citizen on a question? On, but but, on, but on fundamental citizen? things are afoot to quote Larry Arn in That's this right. debate. Because it's silly, right? First of all, of course they can. What is your relation to the government that I'm here to represent? Yes. And, and second, they almost always have. Almost always without controversy. Right? But don't we live in an age? So I, you know, where does the fuel for this dispute? Where is that? Let What's me tell you where it is, and, and then let's analyze the source of it. The fuel okay. comes from experts within the Bureau of the Census, who have opined that to ask the question will scare members of the public who are not in the country with permission. And because they will be scared, they will not answer, and that therefore the actual number will be depressed, and therefore we are better off not asking, but in fact extrapolating from that other document that you talked about. That That's is their right. argument. It is an argument from expertise. It is an argument from the soul of the progressive movement. Right, because um, if, you know, in, in our country, why, why does it matter who the people are? Well, in our country it matters because they are the governed and they have a right to control the government. And in order to control the government, in order to, they may not be governed except with their consent. For that to be meaningful... There have to be procedures by which they can be regularly consulted. Those procedures can't even begin unless you identify who the people are. And that means that the nation state, like it or not, it's since, since classic times, human beings live under law. And that's because they're political animals in their nature. They have reason and speech, writes Aristotle. 
So the nation state needs to know who its people are. If, by the way, especially if they are to be in control of the government because the government needs to know whom to consult. But in the new understanding, first of all, citizenship doesn't matter. And, and that's, that's because the title to rule, what makes it legitimate for someone to rule? And increasingly, that legitimacy comes from some kind of expertise. The one who knows, the scientist, the public policy expert, they are the people who can design the way the country should work. And it will be for the benefit of us all when they do it, and they have, a, they have an authority to do it that inheres in their knowledge. So do you see, two, uh, in, the, in, the old, uh, in, in the old and I regard as proper understanding, humanness and loyalty or membership in the regime are the two titles of sovereignty. Yes. And everybody who's got that has sovereignty, is a, a member of the sovereign body. In the new understanding, it's the one who knows, which in a funny way is kind of going back to Socrates, who's always making the argument, the one who knows. Yes. Decide, right? Yes. Except knowledge is not the same thing as what he was talking about. He was talking about the difficult kind of knowledge to have that is, however, available to us all. Everybody could get it if they pursue wisdom, which is a lifelong task and difficult. But this new kind of knowledge is specialized. Everybody can be a specialist, but not everybody can be a specialist in the same thing, you see. And so one of the features of the old understanding of government is the key questions of government are available to us all to understand and decide. And the old and in the new understanding, there aren't any questions that we as a body can decide because only specialists can decide. And by definition, on each subject, there's only a few of them. And I, I want to remind people now, if you go back and listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues of a couple of years ago, Dr. Arn and I spent a few weeks talking about a book by C.S. Lewis called That Hideous Strength, the central plot feature of which is an institute um, that's satanic, actually, that gathers experts and to whom deference must be paid because they are experts. It is almost exactly the argument we are confronting. They make often in that hideous strength about the need to defer to experts on this census, even though it's counterintuitive to everything we believe in. No, Larry Arn. That's right. And that, so, you know, the, the, the greatest statesman to live in this age where these arguments are dominant, which is, you know, the, the, uh, the, age of, the, the age of the bureaucrat and of modern science is the age in which we live. And the greatest man to live in that is Winston Churchill. And one of the most telling things he said is, there is no room for this House, in the House of Commons, see, for, the, for expertise. We are not experts. We are British worthies, representative of a people and their rights. You see? And he believed that the debates in the House of Commons where the law should be made should, should and must necessarily be of a tone so that everybody can hear them and participate in them and understand them. And it's that same spirit that made James Madison write that if the laws are so voluminous and changeable, 
that that nobody knows what they say. It doesn't matter if they're made by some kind of legitimate process. It's still not the rule of law. It's not the rule of law. When we come back, we'll pick up on that point in the last segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. Sign up for Imprimus. Watch the terrific courses. All of our conversations for your binge-listening pleasure dating back to 2013, are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Six important minutes here, Dr. Arn. The rule of law is what we left off on. I believe this census question is vital to the rule of law, and I think the Chief Justice agrees with me and laid out, in his opinion, a way for the president to put this question on there. What did you think the Chief Justice was doing? Well... He, uh, well, first of all, I, I thought more than you thought, I will remind you, that what he was doing was making a mess. <laughs> yes, but, he did. But, uh, but, but the, the nature of the mess you're asking about is he did indicate that they can do this if they want to. They just have to give a consistent reason. He didn't even quite say a reason we regard as legitimate. Correct. He, he said, you've got to give a reason that seems that that it's not provable on its face to be false. And actually, even less than that, that is not contradictory to another reason that you have. You can give cumulative reasons, but one may not be the opposite of the other. You may not say A and not A support the census. Yeah, and that's silly. And, uh, you know, in in all of this, you know, when I say this is, you know, a a huge bunch of things pending on a little thing, I want to give something to the people who to these experts in the Commerce Department. As far as I can see and understand, the census is not used as an enforcement mechanism. We're not identifying where the illegals or who are the people who've got too many dogs in their house or anything, right? We're not, we're using it as data, and that's all. And what it does is help us, the most critical thing it does is it helps us draw lines of representation. So it is true that there apparently, asking lots of questions about citizenship or some questions about citizenship in this American Community Survey, you can get the information another way. But having said that, really, is it that the argument that it's wrong even to ask the question when it's always been asked is just silly. And, and so, and then for, you know, the Supreme Court to step in and stop the question because they gave... Uh, answer A and answer not A in different places about why they were doing it. I don't think that was right, but you're you're pointing towards something in your recent Washington Post articles and under the under the uh, firm tutelage of great judge Mike Ludig that uh, there's it's easy to see how they can fix that. Have a meeting, write a memo, give the reasons, and put the question on. Yes, it's <laughs> just not that. Hard, and I think maybe it comes from managing things. It's just not that hard, and they've got Honey Badger, the Attorney General Honey Badger, is out there, and Barr is going to to give them that memo. I don't know if it'll be in the form of an executive order. I don't know if it's going to be a memorandum. I'll have to wait and read it carefully this evening, but uh, and over the weekend. But once that's done, ought not the court to recede from the field? Yeah, if uh, you know courts, they. They have to be shy because they have to be shy about interfering in the work of the other branches. Yes. Because their particular power is really absolute. 
once the thing gets to the Supreme Court and decided there, that's it as regards that thing, right? So, and I, I'll show you most dramatically, and one of the most dramatic court cases in the world in history is Dred Scott versus Sanford. And Dred Scott was a slave, and he was taken into a free state, and he sued for his freedom because he'd been taken into a free state. And Justice Taney, one of the worst ever in the history of the Supreme Court. Maybe the worst. Yeah, ruled that he, he, he's a slave, right? Now, he ruled a whole bunch of other trash in that thing, like there's no power in the Congress to forbid slavery anywhere, stuff like that. But Lincoln says in protesting against that case, and he Lincoln establishes the model for protesting against bad Supreme Court cases, he says, as regards the particular issue, poor Dred Scott is a slave, and nothing can fix that. No force on earth can change that. And so having that power ultimately to dispose and having the nature that they are not a legislative body forward-looking, they are actually backward-looking. And they look at two things. There's been a law, right, and there's been that happened in the past, and there's been an action or enforcement or something, and that happened in the past, and we are to compare those two things. And that's their nature of their job, and that means... They make a very poor legislative body. A very poor, and they ought to be humble. And that's, I, I want to end on that. They ought to be very, very concerned with the preservation of their authority, their capital, their ability to command, because if you use it too often, it's gone. Dr. Larry Arn, is always a pleasure. The Hillsdale Dialogue will be posted, as usual, over at HughForHillsdale.com and everything Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, have a fine weekend. We'll be back to talk more about the census and matters big and small in next week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, all of you, for listening. I'll talk to you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.